This is CliffCentral.com. How does gender-based violence fall on the shoulders of men in this day and age? This is what I'm really interested in discussing with educator, filmmaker, and author Jackson Katz. He's also the founder and president of MVP Strategies. He has a ton of insight, and he's going to share that with us today about what a man really should be. And he joins me from the U.S. Uh, Jackson, how are you, sir? I'm very well, Gareth. Thanks very much. It's great to be with you. Now, I'm going to give people a little bit of a background on you because there is there is quite a lot. This is a great CV. Um, you created a gender violence prevention and education program, which is called Mentors in Violence Prevention. It's used by the U.S. military, no less, and by various sporting organizations, including major U.S. football leagues. Um, it's one of the longest running and most widely influential gender violence prevention programs in North America. And you're also the author of two excellent books. One is called The Macho Paradox, Why Some Men Hurt Women and How All Men Can Help. And Man Enough, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton and the Politics of Presidential Masculinity. I'm sure that that is a hot topic for the next election, too. You're also a former football star, it has to be said, and a TED Talk speaker, one of the most prominent voices in the pro-feminist men's movement. So it's great to have someone with all those credentials and with those interesting points of view join us today. So, Jackson, how did, how did all of this happen? I mean, how did you become a guy who speaks out against the bad kind of masculinity and talks up the good kind and helps men figure out what their new role or what their improved role in society ought to be? Well, I mean, it, it goes back to when I was a, a, a university student, you know, quite a, quite, a, quite a long time ago in the early 1980s. But I was, I was a young guy and I was um, pretty oblivious to the levels of sexual assault and domestic violence and, you know, sexism more generally, I wasn't completely unaware, but I was, you know, pretty much living my life. But then I realized at, 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 at age 18, 19, um, just how pervasive the problems of men's violence against women were and how they were connected to larger systemic and, you know, cultural forces. It wasn't just individual bad apples or individual men with pathology, but it was connected to deeper systems. And this is at the same time as a young white guy that I was, downloading all kinds of information and understanding about racism and how racism function. And again, I wasn't completely oblivious to this as a, as a, you know, as an adolescent or as a child, but I was hardly engaged with, with, you know, critical dialogue about that or thinking about how I could play a constructive role. And all this was happening as a young guy in, at university. I'm like, Oh my God, this, these are systems that are hugely impactful or huge, have a huge influence on virtually everything in our societies. And that's mm -hmm. the other thing. Uh, Gareth, I, I learned very early that, like, say, domestic and sexual violence are not just siloed issues that have, you know, impact on victims and survivors and, and individual families, that these are connected and marbled into other social systems like race and, you know, uh, class inequality and injustice and imperialism and colonialism and all these other larger forces. And I was aware very early on of those interconnections. And then one last piece to bring it back to the personal. I was a young guy who was enjoying my freedom away from home as a young university student and coming and going as I pleased at, you know, two or three in the morning from parties and stuff. And I'm not saying it was rational, but it was normative mm -hmm. for men in my sort of, you know, racial and ethnic and class background, you know, just living my life. And I lived with women in my residence hall in my university 
who whose lives were completely different. They had constantly to worry about their personal safety, constantly worried about what time they were going home and who they were going home with. And the fear of sexual violence hung in the air for these women it's day and night, especially at night. But I remember thinking if I were a woman and I had to live like that, I had to constantly worry about my personal safety because of fear that some members of the other sex, if you will, were, were going to sexually assault me. I would be so ticked off about that. And I remember thinking not that the women who were speaking out about that subject as long ago as the late 70s and early 80s, not that they hated men, that they were anti-male, but that they were righteously indignant that they had to live with second class status and had to live with the fear of violence. And I thought, as a man, I'm in a position to do something about this. And even though I myself was not abusive, if I didn't speak up and challenge other men and use whatever platform of influence that I had, then my silence would be a form of consent and complicity in this ongoing uh, violence and abuse. Again, the same as with racism. If I'm as a white person, I think racism is bad, but I don't speak up and I don't challenge racism and I don't challenge around me and in the, in the systems that privilege me. If I don't speak up, then in a sense, my silence is uh, part of the problem. You know, the, the books that you've written, obviously you've, you've done a lot of work behind the scenes because when you put a book together like The Macho Paradox, you, you must have spent an inordinate amount of time interviewing people, doing the research, reading other people's material, um, explaining uh, through, through your book uh, what other people's experiences might have been, men and women. Uh, you must have a tremendous amount of, of information, which you then have to, you have to kind of prioritize, filter figure out and put into a, a, a cogent text which can be helpful to people. It's, it's a very different process to just writing a book full of information because also the kind of stuff that you're writing might not be welcome to the audience you hope will read it. Well, sure. I mean, that, that's part of the challenge. But I mean, <laughs> I always I was always a believer in the idea that ideas can change the world and that and that books are a, a primary vehicle for the transmission of ideas and, you know, why not? We need a paradigm. I keep, I've keep been saying this for, for 35 years. We need a paradigm shift in our thinking. We need a, a new conceptual framework. The old idea is that, you know, domestic and sexual violence are essentially women's issues and women's problems. And there are some good men that need to help out those women in, in addressing those problems. And I think that's so on its face. It's such a problematic frame. And so a big part of my work, both in my book, The Macho Paradox, but in my writing and my speaking and my training and everything else I've been trying to help people think this is not about good men helping out the women. This is about men taking responsibility for male dominated systems and male dominated societies that are producing abusive men at frankly pandemic rates. I know the word pandemic has other meanings now, but mm. it's, it's way beyond epidemic. It's so, it's so marbled into our societies and the levels now of sexual violence, and domestic are so pervasive. You will you will forgive me for being a little skeptical when I hear the the kind of college Marxist leftist tropes of systemic this systemic that where it kind of takes the responsibility away from individual men and also where we blame systems for everything because it's quite convenient for people who do behave like assholes to be uh -huh. able to blame a system and to say well it's because of inequality or it's because of this or it's because of that because Essentially, what we're doing is we're externalizing the problem. And for many people, this is a, a personal psychopathy. For many people, I mean, certainly what you're saying about men who, who perceive themselves to not be the bad guys, 
they have a duty as well. And I want to talk a little bit about this passive language thing in a minute because I think that's fascinating. But what is your response to people who say, oh, well, this sounds like any other liberal arts college professor diatribe against the system from the left? Um, I would say, I, you know, I appreciate the question. I would say we, we, we human beings, we homo sapiens have a big enough brain that we can hold in our head more than one thought at the same time, which is to say we can hold multiple thoughts in our head at the same time. We can hold individuals accountable for their behavior, and that's important, and people have to take responsibility for their behavior and should be held accountable for that. But at the same time, we can take a step back and ask how are the various uh, institutions of the society producing outcomes that are predictable if you have a more sophisticated understanding of how systems relate to individual actors, mm. then you have to change those systems or you're just running from one brush fire to the next and, 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 and you know, putting out the fire and running from one incident to the next or one pathological man to the next and saying, what happened here? Why did this guy go wrong? What happened here? Oh, it must've been a bad childhood. It must've been a drinking problem. It must've been, he lost his job and you're not solving anything because you're not getting underneath to the roots of the problem. So call that what you will. I think yeah. that's just common sense. No, I think that's a great answer because so often we try to, we try to be binary about these things and, and you can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? And it's possible for us to have these two problems, the one is systemic and the other one is much more individual, and to tackle them both if we really care about the, the victims in these, in these situations. But t tell me about the passive yeah. language because this to me was a bit of an aha moment when you explain, for example, that we talk about how many women were raped last year. We don't talk about how many men raped women last year. Well, you're right. At, at, at the at the risk of sounding um, like I'm 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 fighting uh, the last battle of the last of the last conversational um, uh, meme here. Um, language is a systemic force. Language helps to structure the way that we collectively think and the way we collectively understand and narrate our experience. And the way that uh, so a big part of my work from the beginning or close to the beginning of my work has been to look critically at how people think about this subject. Because if we're going to try to shift, if, if my work and others' work is trying to help people shift to think about this as a men's issue, not as a women's issue that good men help out with, how it's important to think about how historically we've thought about it as a women's issue and how language contrib contributes to that. So if you look critically at language, so much of the language that we use to talk about the subject of domestic and sexual violence itself keeps us in the old paradigm of thinking it's a women's issue. One of the ways it does that is by erasing agency on the part of men. In other words, the ones who are doing it, you talk about what happens to women, but not who's doing it to them. Even, right. I mean, for example, we say, we say, as I've said a lot, um, how many women were raped rather than how many men raped women. We say how many women were abused rather than how many men abused women. We say how many girls or women were sexually harassed in the workplace rather than how many men sexually harassed women in the workplace. Even the term violence against women, is a term that's passive. There's no active agent. Nobody's doing it to women. They're just experiencing yeah. it. And frankly, this so, is also probably the best illustration of what the systemic problem is, is because we're, we're victim focused, which is obviously correct from a, from an empathetic, from a, from a procedural point of view, but we actually don't assign the blame. We talk about the woman as the victim, but we don't talk about how many men may be doing this on a daily basis as the, as the real source of the problem. That's right. I just read a long article or a longish article. Um, in an in an in an in a publication in Nigeria mm -hmm. about sexual violence in Nigeria, and there wasn't one mention in the whole article about um, about men. 
the word women and girls was strewn throughout the article, kept referencing women and girls experience, women and girls as victims and survivors, women and girls services for women and girls. But every time it referred to the perpetrator, it was degendered and neutered. It was perpetrators, individuals, um, abusers. And, and again, I don't, I don't. I don't think it's anti-male to just be honest about this. Yeah. I think that's BS. By no, the way, sure. I, think that- I, I completely agree. I think we've we've largely managed to discredit those arguments from a, a certain quarter of of the uh, intelligentsia who believe that that somehow any any stance you take which which is pro women which gives women agency and which also assigns blame that somehow that that's an anti-men stance is kind of ridiculous, right? right? It is. It is ridiculous. And I have to say, Gareth, one of the one of the, I think this is an important point, especially for men. Um, listening and men engaging in this, you know, in these kinds of dialogues that from, from the earliest days of the modern, if you will, pro-feminist men's movement or men engaged with support, being supportive of feminism and, and gender justice and gender equality, people like myself and others have made the connection between men's violence against women, men's violence against other men and men's violence against themselves. In other words, anybody like some men will say in response to these kinds of discussions. Well, what about violence against men? What about all the men who, of course, there's violence against men, but most of the violence against men is done by other men. And this, the same system, again, the same system that produces men who abuse women also produces men who abuse other men. The same, when I say system, the same ideology about manhood, the same socialization of boys and girls. But again, we, we must be careful again, not to fall into the trap that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement falls into where it says, oh, well, only violence against black people from white people is the problem and we all know that that is not it's only a a, a part of the problem and similarly here we don't want to end up having an argument with people who think that it's the same thing when you talk about sex and and gender violence as it is with race right no i mean mean, again these are just in fairness these are tricky issues because the politics around them are somewhat different than than a, a more serious, so, so sober intellectual let me discussion. Ask, let me ask you about that because in America at the moment, you don't have the the kind the levels and the extreme and very violent situations to the degree that we have in South Africa, for whatever reason. And in South Africa, we know that part of the problem here is is fatherlessness. It's the lack of male role models. It's the lack of discussions that people like you have in America that we don't have. Um, as as often and on as many platforms as we do. But let's just look at the history of this for a second. I mean, men really have only been behaving appropriately and in a humane way towards women for maybe a 100 years. Because before that, I don't know if there even was such a thing as consensual sex. And generally, the, the story of humanity for at least the last two millennia has been a fairly violent one. And we can't imagine that before that it was any better. It was probably even worse. So in the last hundred years, and because I'm sure that from a social and anthropological point of view, you've looked at this, for a hundred years, men have been making hopefully steady incremental improvement, and in some places, more exponential improvement. But for many women, it's it's still not enough. They're still treated no better than their great-great-grandmother might have been. Um, and And this idea is perhaps going to to need in evolutionary terms a little bit longer to go. And we can't afford that. We can't afford more women being hurt. We can't afford more sexual and gender-based violence. We have to speed this process up. So when you look at it historically, how do you compare that to where we are now, to where we should be? And what is the role of men? 
Well, I appreciate that's big picture thinking. I mean, I mean, yes, it's going to take, it's taking decades and it will take probably hundreds of years to undo some of these structures that are deeply rooted in the last 10,000 years of, you know, recorded human history and civilizational history. And so it's, you it can't be naive to think that overnight or even in a few years, we're going to, we're going to shift, radically shift history in that way. Although I have to say, having just said that, the changes that have happened over the past 50 years, the, the past half century, have been unbelievably Absol- dramatic. Absolutely. And, right. and we should, we should and be it, proud of that as, as humanity. That's right. We should be. But, but knowing, knowing that this is a long struggle and you're, you're right. You can't, like some people are impatient and they should be that it should be changed yesterday. It mm-hmm. should be changed tomorrow, not, not, you know, 10 years or 50 years in the future. And some of the problems of humanity are compounding with, 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 you know, compounding on, on top of the existing problems. There's all kinds of other problems that are awaiting us, environmental calamity and everything else. But so we can't wait, if you will, in that sense. But, um, it's it's an it's a it's a it's an enormous undertaking. I think that men have to be centrally involved in this mm-hmm. because men continue to hold most social, political, and economic power in the world. Women have made enormous progress around the world in challenging sort of um, men's monopoly on various kinds of power and authority. There's no doubt about that, and women and that's one of the great stories of the past um, hundred years, and it will be the next sto- uh, one of the great stories of the 21st century, both in your country and mine. And by the way, today is the anniversary. Th- we're recording this on the on the anniversary of um, the the year that women, uh, the day that women in the United States won the right to vote. Susan B. Anthony, uh, yeah, that's right. A hundred years today Correct. is the day. A hundred years in evolutionary terms is like a is like a, a blink snap of, an eye. of the finger. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so Jackson, I mean, look, this is fascinating, and I I really could talk to you all day, and maybe we will talk for a little bit longer if you don't mind. The the, sure. the fact that men disengage from subjects like this, where it it is, and I'm talking about men who are not actively committing violence against women. A lot of right. those men don't want to be part of this conversation because they go, "Well, this is not my problem." This is not my issue. I'm not one of these guys who beats women up, so I don't know why I have to be having these conversations. But it is important for those guys to get involved too, right? Absolutely. I mean, and I'm I'm one of the kind of architects of what's of the approach to prevention, the prevention of sexual and domestic violence called the bystander approach. And the the idea of the bystander approach is you move beyond the perpetrator victim binary. In other words, instead of focusing on just on the person doing the the abuse and the person experiencing it, you focus on everybody around the person doing it and everybody around the person experiencing it. The goal there is to get people in various peer cultures, whether it's a small group of guys, for example, or it could be a classroom, it could be a workplace, it could be a family or community. I mean, there's, there's small and large peer cultures, but the idea is to engage everybody in this issue and in this set of issues. And the, the, the message to men, for example, who are not themselves a, abusive is, okay, if you don't abuse your girlfriend or your wife or other women and girls, but other men around you do, or other men around you treat women callously or dis- with disrespect or, or constantly make negative comments about girls and women, and you don't say anything to make it clear that you're not okay with what they're saying or act how they're acting, then in a sense, your silence is a form of consent in their enactment of sexism or their enactment of the ad or their perpetuation of the attitudes that lead to it. Right. And so what, what can you do if you're a good person, a good, uh, forget about good man. If you're a good person, what can you do to, to, to not be part of that problem? Mm-hmm. And, and how can you do it 
safely. I mean, because this isn't about superheroes jumping in when you see a, an assault happening and rescuing no. the damsel in distress. I'm, I'm talking no, about something that's, that's, a, that's an ego thing, right? Yeah, that's an ego thing, and it, it infantilizes the the women yeah. or the victims as, as like they need to be rescued by stronger men, and they're helpless. I don't. Instead of thinking about it like that, what about thinking about okay, I can't remain i can't think of myself as a person of integrity who speaks out when he see when he sees injustice or abuse and then remain silent when my mate my friend my colleague is acting out in ways that are abusive a lot of men however they walk away they say you know what it's none of my business i'm not going to get involved it's awkward it's socially awkward um i could lose status within my peer culture i could be seen as the one who's you know got the issues and like i'm the one who makes everybody uncomfortable so a lot of men as a result, end up telling themselves, no, nah, it's not really worth it. It's not really going to change anything. And I remain silent. How do you see that changing through the generations? I mean, certainly your generation, I would say, probably has very different attitudes to mine. And again, those younger than me have probably even more progressive attitudes. It's highly unlikely that that these things are getting worse generationally. But But it's right. curious to me also. I mean, you want to answer that first, and then I'll bring up the other part of it. Sure. I mean, I think fundamentally, Gareth, I think it's a leadership issue. I think this is about men who are in positions of leadership and leadership can be broadly defined. It doesn't have to be formal positions of leadership, mm-hmm. although that's true too. informal leadership. Like I always say, when a 15 year old boy turns to his friend who just told a joke about rape and says to his friend, hey, dude, that's not very funny. Or can you joke about something else? That 15 year old boy has just acted as a leader, he might not see himself as a leader. He might not have any credentials to suggest that he's a leader, but that's an act of leadership. It's like saying, you know what? I see something that's wrong and I'm not going to remain silent. I'm going to say something, even if, by the way, there might be a negative pushback because his friend might turn to him and say, Hey, what are you talking about, man? What are you, you know, what are you soft? But if you think about it as a leadership issue, then think about all the men and young men who are in positions of influence in their families and their communities and their workplaces who are generally good people, but who have never taken any affirmative steps to speak out, to help to stand with women in public, not not just public on the public stage, but public within their peer culture. There's an awful lot of good men who have never really done that. If, If they would begin to do that and act as leaders in that way, then you're modeling for the next generation of young men and boys. This is normal behavior for guys. This is what, this is what men do. This is what adult men do. This is what adult men who are confident do. This is not some weird, like weird, you know, virtue signaling by some. It's it's, it's healthy, right? And and, in fact, it also sets an example for, for the young men who are looking for the way to behave. Because when they see a man who behaves as the protector, as the as the, the the person of integrity in a, in a society, then that's the kind of person they model themselves on. Of course, and 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 yet there has been not there has really been not that much leadership on the part of adult men, yeah. and that crosses class and race, and it crosses obviously geography and education level. There's there's some really great men all over the world who have been doing great work and have used their platform of leadership to talk about these issues and to be, you know, and, and modeling. I think, I think it's important. It's important for us to acknowledge also that this is not women's job. In, in a, in a single, in a woman headed household, you know, where you got a single mom, she can't do, she will not be able to do a better job than her and a man who are both putting in the, the required amount of effort to raise boy or girl children. Uh, it, it, it makes it a lot harder. She's going to face an uphill battle. And despite all the feminist goodwill in the world, 
she's got a much tougher job without a man who can help her carry that burden than if she did with. It's true, but it's complicated, as you know, because, for example, the presence of an abusive man in the in the home is worse than the absence of that. Right. In my opinion, yeah. I mean, people no, can get with that. I, I don't. I don't right. think anyone's going to argue with you. Yeah. Right. Right. So. So then, but some, you know, there's all the, all kinds of structural reasons why people end up being single, why women end up being single mothers, or fa- or men end up being single fathers. There's, there's hey, all kinds of. I mean, we can that. get into deadbeat dads too, because that's a major problem in South Africa and in the U.S. Right, right. In, in addition, though, Gareth, the, it's a cliche to say it, but it's true. It it does take a village to raise a child. It's I'm a parent. It's not easy. I mean, parents are influential, incredibly influential. But but there's a whole peer culture out there. There's a whole sports culture and media culture and pornography culture and all these other way, religious beliefs, all these other uh, ways in which our kids are being socialized. So I wouldn't want to just narrow it down to like, what are they learning from their parents in their nuclear family? That's that's important, but it's not the only force at work. So, for example, a single mother in South Africa could have could be incredibly dynamic and powerful. And yet her say her son goes out the door, walks out the door, and all of a sudden he's got all kinds of other influences in his life. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm by no means negating all those other influences, but it is the primary and the most important and the most lasting influence on most children as they grow up. And they've done you know, innumerable uh, research papers on how the absence of that kind of, of nuclear family or certainly a positive male influence, even if it's not the father – you know, it could be a grandfather. It could be yeah, the other yeah. the other men in the neighborhood. That yep. stuff that stuff puts a child at an immediate disadvantage and is likelier to result in that child having very skewed views on what women's and men's roles in society are, and therefore treating people not necessarily the best way. Perhaps, but that that but that's also that's also another reason why it's so important for men and young men who are in positions of influence with boys. And girls, but it's certainly boys, not just fathers, as you said. And I, I think it's important to always emphasize mentors, teachers, mm-hmm. coaches, you know, religious leaders, yeah. youth workers. So many men have that have influence with boys that aren't those boys' fathers. And 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 if those men would, for example, who are coaching a sports team, because I you know I work extensively in that in that sector, right? right. In athletics, both professional <laughs> athletics, university athletics, and youth sports in the United States and, and some other places. Um, and when I was in South Africa a number of years ago, I had meetings. I had all kinds of presentations and meetings in Pretoria with the with the uh, the rugby club. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember the. I don't want to get the wrong the, the name. It must wrong. have been the Blue Bulls if you were in Pretoria. It was the Blue Bulls, <laughs> and it was at their stadium. <laughs> right. I, and I actually still have some of their swag in my in my uh, oh, wow. house. Okay, but this is the, cool. <laughs> it, was Bulls, it was what's that? I said that's cool. It was cool, but it was, it was, it was, um, the, um, the front office staff, the coaching staff. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't working directly with the players, but I was, I was talking about the work that I and my colleagues have been doing in the professional athletic space. And again, I, we're not, none of us are naive about, you know, professional athletics has a special role, Hmm. but the goal really, in my opinion, in working with professional athletes is really the influence that they have in shaping norms for youth sports. Because look at all the kids in South Africa. Look at all the young boys who play, who play soccer, right? Who play football and, and rugby. And, and think about the coaches, how much time those coaches spend with those kids way more than many of those kids spend with their own father. And so if the coach, if the coach had this attitude that, you know what, 
and and a lot of them do. Let me just say, a lot of them already do. That I have I have more than just I'm not just teaching them the nuts and bolts of this sport. I'm actually giving them lessons in life. But if part of that lesson in life was a man of integrity does not treat women with disrespect. A man who's confident in himself, by definition, doesn't need to prove that he's in control of women to prove that he's somehow a worthy person. That's that's not a sign of strength. It's a sign of actually it's a sign of weakness. Imagine if they were trained it's systematically coaches to to be able to impart that not as experts in the subject matter but as adult figures who are influential in the lives of young people and they were able to marble that into their teaching and their mentoring to young boys how influential that would be can we go back for a minute to the, the question of language because i think there there is some damage being done by by activists who whose intentions are good but whose result ends up being quite destructive to the cause of of women being abused by men. And that is that, you know, we saw with the Justice Kavanaugh hearings, and we we see a a number of examples where any kind of flirtatious behavior, any language which is sexist, even if it's very slightly sexist, is immediately equated to the very worst kinds and the most egregious kinds of violence. And I feel that that has somehow done the job of taking trivial things and made them criminal and taken criminal things and made them trivial. And, and I think that's dangerous. Do you agree that that is something to be aware of? Because in our attempts to be politically correct, in our attempts to address things, sometimes with real empathy, sometimes with real care, sometimes with sincerity, we do the wrong thing just because we want to appear to be on the right side. Yes, I think there, there's a number of issues that you just raised, which I appreciate. And I do think that there, that one impediment to getting more men engaged with this conversation is making some of these nuanced, um, differentiate, you know, differentiating different types of abuse Mm. and saying that a man who's, you know, who has made sexist comments, you know, is somehow therefore, um, uh, not capable of becoming a, a, a member in good standing of the community because he's transgressed. I do. I, it's it's a little tricky, and I have to say it's tricky as men to be talking about this because mm-hmm. most of the people who are angry and upset about men's behavior, not exclusively, but tend to be women who who are the ones who have felt the brunt of men's you know derogatory comments and physical and sexual violence. And so, as men talking about it, we have to, I think, have to be sensitive to the fact that they're that that they have their own experience of it. But I do have to say that you're going to lose a lot of men from the conversation if you don't make these distinctions between different types of abuse. Because, for example, in, in my trainings, for example, we do have literally exercises where we delineate the types of abuse mm-hmm. and, and they range across a whole, there's a whole range of abuses that, that take place. And once you go through that list of, I mean, everything from catcalling on the streets to gang rape, I mean, and everything in, everything in between, you start realizing that a lot of them are connected to each other. Some are more serious than others, but they're not completely different universes. They're, they're actually, they're all part of a, um, a broader sort of cultural landscape. But if you don't, if you don't make those distinctions, then men will just tune you out because they'll, because so many men, for example, people will say to me, um, I don't want to, like, I'll give you, let let me back up one step, Gareth. Some men will say, I don't feel comfortable or I don't feel confident or I don't feel, um, 
uh, like I'm um, in a position to challenge, to speak out and tell other men how to behave. Cause I myself have got some issues or there's mm-hmm. things that I've done that I'm not proud of, or there's things, you know, thoughts that go through my head that aren't pure. And therefore who am I to tell other men how to be act or behave? Cause I'm not myself fully evolved, if you will. Well, and yeah. I, and, and, and you hear this politically as well with people that have almost a purity test before they, they feel like they're empowered to do right. something. Yeah. Right. And my response to that is if we're waiting for men to be perfect and not have one, <laughs> we're never going to get there. <laughs> yeah. We're never going to get there. We're not going to have any men because yeah. I don't even know if they exist. But so, so I think what we have to ask for is, is something different, which is not that you have to be perfect or that your, your life resume has to be completely clean or pure, but rather you have to be committed as a person today, say as an adult man or a young adult man to say, you know what? Maybe I haven't been perfect. Maybe I have participated in some ways in a, in, in a, a cultural abuse that I don't particularly, uh, I'm not particularly proud of, mm-hmm. but I'm conscious enough and I'm, I have the moral integrity to say, you know what? I got to do better and I'm going to try to figure out how I can he- hear some of the criticism, hear some of the pushback that I've been getting, hear some of the women's voices that have been speaking up loudly, like the, in the Me Too era and before. And I'm going to figure out how I can be do better. Not that I have to be perfect or not that I have to have been perfect. It's pretty I, I, simple. I love that you brought that up because so often, you know, we, we identify a problem and that's a good thing. And we act on that problem and that's also a good thing. And ultimately, we, we get some justice sometimes. But we don't seem to have a route for men who have committed one or two of the violations either the minor ones or the major ones, we don't have any route to them for redemption. And I think that right. that that kind of puts them in a permanent hell, which keeps them acting out badly. And maybe right. if we found ways to rehabilitate those men and to give them a path to redemption, we might have a few that we could save who are otherwise just going to keep acting out and doing huge damage to women and to other men. Right. And I think, honestly, one of the interesting sort of parallels between what South African society has been engaged with for the past 30, you know, plus Mm -hmm. years and what we're going through now in the United States, but also we're going to be going through globally is this whole notion of truth and reconciliation. And, and what is, what does restorative justice mean? And what, what are the ways to account for some of the normative behaviors in the past that have, perpetuated injustice, inequality, and violence that have now been seen through the lens, a different lens of like, this is not, this is not acceptable. But at the same time, some, some people in the society, including a lot of men have participated in them. But if you don't want to write them off, which I don't want to do, and I do believe in redemption and I do believe in reconciliation. How do you, how do you, how do you fashion that around issues as intimate as violence and sexism and family violence? Because, because as you say, some of these men are in our families and in our friendship circles. And if we don't have a little charity and we don't have a little forgiveness, all we're doing is we're judging and we're condemning. And that's only half the job, right? That's right. That's right. And I mean, and again, and again, I, I think that's why, that's why, I think we're going to be litigating this as societies for several decades, at least several decades. Like, how do you, how do you bring men back into community that have transgressed? And I don't mean brutal, like gang rapes mm-hmm. or something, because that's, there's, there's punishment. People have to, people have to be punished for incredible levels of brutality. And, 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 there, are, and there are some that. that we won't be able to, to rehabilitate. No, right. Right. There's some beyond rehabilitation. That's right. But, 
But if you want to talk about the broad spectrum of the population, I would say the vast majority of men have in some ways transgressed and been, been a part of a system of abuse towards women and girls, even if they themselves haven't physically or sexually assaulted women and girls, many men have contributed to, have enabled others' abuse, have participated in various ways in perpetuating the underlying beliefs that perpetuate that abuse. If we want to bring those men into community, how are we going to do that? And who's going to be the judge? And and you know, are, are we going to have literally? Are we going to have tribunals? I mean, is it going to be part of a an ongoing conversation? Is there going to be some kind of commissions that are established on the local and and the, and the federal level? And, and these are all questions. And Jackson, men don't support each other in this way either. You know, women have, and if there are differences between the sexes, and I think there are, one of the differences is that women talk to each other, and they. They're able to discuss things and, and be emotional with each other in a way that men find it difficult to do. And, right. and perhaps one of the things that we also need to do in South Africa right. and in the rest of the world is to find ways for men to support each other. And some of the other guests in the webinar are, 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 are very much involved in community programs and in you know setting yeah. examples for, for boy children at schools and, and, and to stop them from getting into gangs and that kind of thing. If we could do that in tandem with all the things you're talking about, we might make some very quick progress. I agree, Gareth. And this is, again, this is why I think it's really important that we connect the, the phenomenon of men's violence against women is directly connected to men's violence against other men and men's violence against themselves. In other words, there's something about how we're defining manhood and how boys and men are being socialized that's leading many of them to act out in ways that are hurting other people and hurting themselves and hurting other men. And so getting men to talk about each other, to, to each other empathetically, yes, and to women, and and to say like look God, to men to be able to say to each other i'm concerned about you i'm concerned about your health your both your physical health but your emotional and psychological and relational health and the ways in which you're acting aren't just hurting women and girls they're hurting you and i care about you if men can hear that there's empathy for their experience as well and by the way, think about violence. I'm writing a book right now about, you know, violence and masculinities, right? Mm -hmm. It's a big subject and it's yeah. huge, you know, it's a, it's an undertaking. And uh, it's like so much men commit so much violence against other men. And so many men have been the victims of other men's violence. Well, there's a reason that the, pres the prison populations are so skewed towards men. And, and, and most of it is, is just, you know, unbelievable violence, right? Against each other. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And so, if, if men can see that the violence that they live with, the, the experience of violence, whether it's as children or as adolescents or even as adults, that's not, not all of it, but most of it comes from other men, then and – th and that what we're talking about here when we're talking about reducing men's violence against women entails thinking about m being a man more, in a more holistic way that, that – that, that, um, doesn't require putting down others to lift ourselves up, that doesn't require – demonstrating power and control in every every realm of life that confidence and 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 self-confidence resides in being able to have a sense of wholeness without having to be one up on another person this will this will help so many boys and men have better relational lives better emotional experiences and lives and certainly it'll 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 reduce the violence that boys and men experience as well as reduce the violence that they perpetrate well i'm 
thrilled that there are people like you that are devoting their life and their time to figuring out how men can be better and how humanity as a result can be better. Um, and it's, it's certainly to me, it's a joint effort. We all have to get stuck in. We all have to get involved. We all have to do whatever part we can to, to fight this, this, as you call it, a pandemic. Our president actually referred to it as our second pandemic. And, and Jackson, I hope that we'll see you in South Africa again soon, but please keep the good work up. Um, thank you, Gareth. I hope so too. And I, and I, and let, let me just say, there is reason, there is reason for hope in your generation and, and subsequent generations. If more, if more men and young men have the courage and the strength to, instead of seeing women who are fighting for their, you know, their rights and, and reducing violence, instead of seeing them as, as their antagonists in some artificial battle between the sexes, if they just see those women as human beings who want to be treated with respect, just like m most men that I know want to be treated with respect, and we can work with them as partners and allies, then all of us will benefit. So thank you. And I, I do hope to be in touch with both you and your, you know, your fellow country people in the coming years, because our, our societies have a lot to teach each other. Well, it's a great pleasure to speak to you. And thank you for your time. Thank you very much. You too. This is CliffCentral.com.